whoever is in that Sacramento suburb listening to us a lot, we love you. Thank you. Thank you, know. you so much for your listenage. Listenage? Listenership? We have listeners all over the world. We when, when do. When we actually look at it, it's so cool. I'm, I'm hoping that it's spreading like a benign virus. It's exciting to see sort of new places crop up starting to spread, which is fun. So my favorite listener right now, and I assume it is one listener, actually. I think we have exactly one listener in Alaska mm. who is who's moving all over Alaska and listening to, I think, every episode. Also, besides some postcards in Southern California, we haven't done any advertising. No, we're way too cool for that. Cities we do really well in. We do really well in Seattle. We <laughs> do really well in the Bay Area. I wonder why. Better... Better than the Bay Area, we do Portland, mm. Dallas, but not Houston, which is interesting because we did a four-part mm-hmm. thing about Houston. Maybe they're mad at us. It wasn't a great showing for Houston. <laughs> Maybe. New York, obviously, we do really well in. Mm-hmm. We need to get out in the Midwest and stuff a bit more, I think. And I think then people are probably still even scared to listen to it in the Midwest. In Europe, we do well in the Netherlands, Germany, a little in Italy, I think. Belgium, and in England, but not London. It's all north of England and the rural areas. Huh, maybe they're looking for inspiration. They're like out, you know, in the boondocks somewhere and are like, oh, cool, kick-ass queers that I definitely don't see around me. We do have a few listeners in China, and I'm honestly oh, genuinely surprised. I don't think so. That's that so, Those are bots. <laughs> that's not, that's not <laughs> happening. Mm-mm. <laughs> Yeah. No. No. Well, it could be people using a VPN, but I don't think a Mm. VPN would choose China Mm -mm. because that's going to get them blocked from a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that one feels dangerous. We're not going to touch it. Welcome to Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Rachel Stewart. And I'm Larry Womack. Well, happy birthday, Larry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. For your birthday, I got you some new content. I crawled out of my depression nest just to record this episode. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you. As someone who has constructed a quite intricate depression nest, I know how hard those can be to crawl out of, so I'm, I'm proud to see you. I wish that you were having less of an existential crisis on your birthday. Oh, and who is the chosen topic for today? Oh, well, perfect. This is actually this is actually really good. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I, I don't know much about this topic, but I know we're leading into it. <laughs> today, we are going to be discussing a queer individual that had a profound impact in the academic world, the French psychologist and philosopher Michel Foucault. Ooh, I love saying that. Yeah, he has a great name. Very French. I cannot overstate how much of an impact Foucault's ideas have had on my ontological and epistemological viewpoints. Now, Larry, and dear listener, before you narrow your eyes and accuse me of making up words, in the simplest terms, ontology is what we know, and epistemology is how we know what we know. For example, I know that gay people have been historically treated really badly by American society. How I know that is through lived and learned experiences. It's obviously a little more complex than that, and there are lots of schools of thoughts that have sprung up based upon different ontologies and epistemologies, but this isn't a graduate-level seminar on social science research methods. 
I'm sure more of this will come up while we talk about him, but his collection of works are foundational in the structuralist and postmodern academic movements. Should I take notes? Should I be taking notes? <laughs> there will be a test afterward. Today, we are going to talk about his life and contributions to the world of philosophy, psychology, thought, and knowledge. I'll be very honest. Much of his work is the kind of stuff that gets argued in the small seminar rooms of graduate schools down the halls of the vaunted ivory towers of academia by pretentious grad students who only really understand about half of what they read. However... Many of the ideas he articulated have trickled down into concepts relevant in the modern world at large. Oh, and he was a giant homosexual. We're always trendsetters. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But before we get to his queerness and the largish role it played in his academic career, let's first get a little bit of information about Foucault's childhood. I have a really hard time picturing Foucault as a child. Right. Do you, do you have a... Yeah, no, no, because like it's so iconic. For those of you who don't know what he looked like for most of his life, he was, he was, he was bald like a villain. Like he was like bald like a cue ball and he would always wear like these, these turtlenecks. And so he looked like a Bond villain. What you're describing to me sounds like a penis, to be honest. Kind of. A bald yeah. man in a turtleneck. Yeah, no, he looked like an uncircumcised penis. Paul-Michel Foucault was born October 15, 1926, in Poitiers, France. He was the middle child in a socially conservative upper-middle-class family. Foucault was originally named after his father, but after his early education, he preferred going by his middle name, Michel. His father, Paul, was a surgeon, and his mother, Anne, was a domestic goddess who took charge of their large real estate located in Vendouvray du Poitou. I'm going to need you to repeat that. Also Poitiers. Poitiers. Like Sydney. Like Sydney Poitiers. Okay. Yeah. And okay. Vendouvray du Poitou. Damn, you're good. While the family identified as Catholic, they were not devout, although little Michel was an altar boy for a time in his childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the frilly dresses. Mm-hmm. So Michel Foucault, altar boy. <laughs> Didn't see that in his future, did you? We need to get some AI on producing images of Michel Foucault as an altar boy. Um, I don't... We've, we've both tried to make AI art. I do not want to see what nightmare it produces. Okay, as an adult, Foucault was reticent to talk about his upbringing, only mentioning at points that he was, according to James Miller in his 1993 book, The Passion of Michel Foucault, a, quote, juvenile delinquent. Fun. Yes. Fun. Yes, he, he's a self-described juvenile delinquent. And his father was a bully who severely punished him often. That's not fun. So can we just as... Unless you're into that sort of well, thing. Well, mm, <clears throat> we call that foreshadowing. <gasps> as an aside, can we just take a moment to say that we have all of the makings for an angsty queer here already? Middle child, mm. doting mother, overbearing father, altar boy. Like, mm. the, that die has been cast. Yeah, it's going to be a specific type of person. Mm -hmm. At the age of four, Foucault entered the Lycée Henri IV, where he stayed until 1939. He excelled in languages, including French, Latin, and Greek, and in history, and sort of sucked completely in mathematics. Same, Michelle. Same. That tracks. Yeah. That tracks. Yeah, yeah, that feels right. 
Yeah. Then, just as he was in the middle of becoming an angsty teenager in 1939, guess what happened, Larry? In 1939. 1939 um, France. Let's see, let's see. Uh, great, great year for film. <laughs> Gone with the Wind, yeah. Stagecoach, yeah, it was good. Of it was awesome. Dark Victory, great year for film. That's just off the top of my okay, head. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Anything else maybe going on in that area? It wasn't an Olympic year. It was off. It's off. Jesse, Jesse Owens had already was... won the year before, but we're getting warmer. <laughs> we are. I love I, I, I loved Olympia. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Lenny Reifenshaw again, getting even warmer. <laughs> Could could you possibly be alluding to uh, <laughs> geopolitical events in 1939? You would be correct. Yes. Mm. That's right. It's a common theme amongst our kick-ass queers this season. World War II broke out. So his his parents weren't cool with Vichy France, but they weren't also like so appalled to like join the resistance either. So instead, mm. they just sort of kept their heads down, and his mother enrolled him in the Collège Saint Stanislas. But they let their displeasure be known on um, X and Facebook. Yes, right? exactly. That's the, yes, that's the that's the important way to resist fascism. Yeah, he they were doing they were doing online activism in 1939. <laughs> <laughs> they cut on the Telegram. <laughs> Some on the very radio. strongly worded telegrams. <laughs> Uh, he was not a fan of the school, calling it an ordeal. And according to Didier Erebon in his 1989 work entitled Michel Foucault, he matriculated from the College Saint Stanislas in 1943 with a focus in philosophy. Okay, wait, wait. I need a moment to reflect on the fact that this guy's growing up in occupied France in World War II. And he's like, you know what's a huge ordeal? This fucking school I have to go to. <laughs> he... We're going to see that this is a theme in his life. What, what a drama queen. Right? That is that is main character syndrome right. is what that is. <laughs> well, let's not lie. Michel Foucault was absolutely the main character in his universe. Absolutely. 100%. Mm. In 1945, ignoring his father's wishes that he become a surgeon, Foucault enrolled in the Lycée Henri IV, but not the same one. Wait, what? Well, because it was a different college. They're all named after Henry IV. I guess that was a like, I don't know. I don't know my French history enough to know, but maybe like that was a, a pretty popular king. But he went to a school, essentially his K-12, as we would call it, was Lycée Henri IV. And now he's going to like a high school slash college called Lycée Henri IV in Paris. So that's where we are. Okay. All right. Okay. So he goes to Paris and he studies under the famed philosopher Jean Hippolata. It was under Ippolata's tutelage that Foucault formed the conviction that philosophy should be studied through the lens of history, according to David Macy in his 1993 book, The Lives of Michel Foucault. <laughs> I just say that this is deliciously ironic, given how completely removed from the history he was living in he seems to have been. <laughs> right? Which is, again, I make sense, I think, even more, to be honest, because... His whole take is that if we study history, we see that all of it is a social construction, so none of it ne necessarily matters. Now, that's a very nihilistic, postmodernist view of it, but essentially, it's everything's a construction. In 1946, Foucault entered the École Normale Supérieure, 
ranked as number four in his class of hundreds. Though Foucault excelled in school, his own recollections about his time as a student paint another picture. Here he is quoted in Miller's book. Quote, I wasn't always smart. I was actually very stupid in school. There was a boy who was very attractive who was even stupider than I was. And to ingratiate myself with this boy who was very beautiful, I began to do his homework for him. And that's how I became smart. I had to do all this work just to keep ahead of him a little bit to help him. In a sense, all the rest of my life, I've been trying to do intellectual things that would attract beautiful boys. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Same, Michelle. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. My other thought is, think of all the lives ChatGPT is ruining right now. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of getting some love-struck gay boy to do your homework. Well, at this point, what a quirky little rom-com we have brewing here. A mute Mm -hmm. cute for the ages. One of the most brilliant minds Mm -hmm. in modern philosophy gets there because of a teenage dream. I love that. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. While Foucault was an excellent student, voracious learner, and lovesick Lothario, he was not necessarily a super popular guy on campus. The picture you've painted so far seems like Mr. Popular. Oh, yeah, right. He generally kept to himself, but was widely known for his near obsession with violence and the macabre. You know what? I should have expected that, but I didn't. Right? I I knew, if only because of something we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Um, He he has a a very popular book that I, I, I quite like, but it is sort of famous for its introduction, which I'll get to in a second. His bedroom was decorated with images of war and torture. And it was reported in Irabon's book that Foucault chased a fellow classmate around with a dagger. Awesome social skills there, Mike. Listen, maybe the kid had it coming. I don't know. I remember (laughs) when got stabbed in eighth grade and everyone was sort of like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, but still, you know, it's still traumatic. That was going to happen eventually. (laughs) Somebody somebody was going to get to the stabbing of that kid. To be clear, he was fine. Stitches and stuff aside, we're not making light of a murder here. Snitches get stitches. In this case, bitches get stitches. Oh. I'm sure he grew up to be a lovely man, though. Let's not. Let's you should not go. You should go stalk him. Find out what happened to yeah. him. Yeah, but apparently, when when he was in eighth grade, everyone was sort of like, "Well, yeah, he probably had that coming." <laughs> that kid was getting stabbed. The reason why I say that seems like maybe sort of predictable is he sounds like. I would say I was one of these kids, but I am still one of these kids mm-hmm. right? who's really into the monster magazines mm-hmm. or whatever the equivalent is now. Okay. Probably there. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Well, let's continue and see if you still identify with this. Okay. <laughs> he was also obsessed with self-mutilation and suicide with his first suicide attempt occurring in 1948. In the years that followed, Foucault attempted suicide several more times and was generally enthusiastic about it in his later writings. (laughs) Okay, okay. A little relatable, I'm going to be honest. (laughs) After his first suicide attempt, Michel was sent to the psychiatrist Jean Delay by his father. And what do you think the diagnosis was, Larry? Was it the gay? (gasps) If you said homosexuality, my dear listeners... Then you get a gold star like Larry did. Yay! Yay. Dr. DeLay believed that his penchant for suicidal ideation came from the psychological distress being gay created. 
and we're having a lot of fun with this so far, but in all seriousness, there is this sort of circular thing that we've talked about before, right? Which is society mistreated homosexuals so much that certain things resulted. One of them would be mental illness and thoughts of self-harm and things like that. And then they go, oh, that's because of the gay. It's not because of... It's not because we (laughs) pushed them into it. Right, right. Funny, not ha-ha, but funny in coincidence that you mentioned that because that theme sort of comes up with Foucault because he does write about like mental illness and madness and homosexuality and you sort of see that same thread going through. So it was also during this time when he's sort of going through his suicidal ideation and they're saying it's because he's a repressed homosexual. Well, was he repressed? Was he was he not acting? Well, he was, but at the time it was still illegal. And while obviously in France it was sort of culturally acceptable as long as you weren't real loud about it. Which is ironic because this is mid-century France. Right, gay petty. His family also doesn't seem to have been very cool with it, so... And I honestly think it's a bunch of shit. I think that he probably was like a manic depressive or something and they blamed it on his homosexuality, right? Because it was also during the same time that according to Miller, Foucault, without cruising the underground gay scene in Gay Petty, having sex, doing drugs, because he, quote, enjoyed the thrill and sense of danger these activities offered him. Ooh, very, so this is, seems like a very mid-century French thing because I immediately think of like Genet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do we know if they knew each other? They probably crossed paths, to be honest. So mm. uh, Foucault loved the avant-garde scene developing in Paris post World War II. During that time, he became romantically entangled with the composer Jean Baroque. Together, they were heavy into the recreational drug and BDSM scene. What year would this be? Uh, Late 40s, early 50s. I know people were doing BDSM because that shows up in erotica, but like it still feels a little early adopter, right? Oh, yeah. No, I I would agree. (laughs) Professionally during this time, Foucault was working at the École Normale Supérieure with Louis Althusset. Althusser had been instrumental in Foucault's academic developments, the effect of which is evident in his future publications. Of particular note was Althusser's concept of interpolation. Interpolation, according to Althusser, occurs when we become aware of our identities as subjects within power structures. His classic example of interpolation is a police officer yelling, Hey, you there, to a person on the street. In the instant that the person on the street turns to see who is calling her name, she has been positioned not only against the police officer as another subject, but also as a subordinate in the face of the officer's power over the law. While many individuals are aware of these examples of interpolation that involve overt power structures like law, legislation, or politics... There are numerous other forms of subjugated interpolation that occur without reflection. This concept and others can be seen as an influence for Foucault's discourse on knowledge, power, and discipline. In 1955, Foucault worked abroad as a cultural diplomat for the University of Uppsala. When in Sweden, he drank heavily, was sexually promiscuous, and was known to drive recklessly around in his jaguar. Such a queen. Okay, I was with him up until the end. To the Jaguar? <laughs> well, to the driving recklessly. Okay, yeah. Especially if he's drunk. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Also, did they have penicillin at this point? They did, right? Yes. Yes, they did. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. A year later in 1956, Baroque finally left Foucault, deciding he'd had enough of the quote, vertigo of madness as cited in Macy. No, wait. So they're, they're a couple. Yeah. They were a couple for like years. And and he's just hoeing around. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. The vertigo of madness. You know what? I just want to say, I would actually feel a really strange sense of pride if any of my exes ever told somebody that they got out of the relationship to release themselves from the vertigo of madness. I can only aspire to such a thing. Right? Is doesn't that sound like that is like that's some A plus behavior? It sounds romantic. Yeah, he's crazy at the point of it being romantic at this point. Yeah, it's it's like a, a sort of intoxication thing, you know. Drunk on love. Yeah, that's a red flag. You I'm should, hot should for you, right? You should now. probably fun fact that one with your therapist. Right. <laughs> also, when, when I realized he was a train wreck slut, I got really into Michelle Foucault for a second. <laughs> that should be the name of the episode. Train Michelle slut. Foucault, train, train wreck, wreck slut. slut. that um all of his books are in my office at work i'm gonna go back and in one of them i'm just gonna write under his name train wreck slut it that's like your version of a burn book You're, exactly exactly michelle foucault is a train wreck <laughs> slut. yes yes oh god so good so that same year 1956 he submitted a doctoral dissertation to the university of Uppsala but was denied by Sten Lindroth, a historical science professor there. Okay, well, if you're named Sten Lindroth, your job is denying people. <laughs> you're not going to overcome that name. <laughs> Somebody named their child My that. name is Larry Womack. I'm a degenerate, <laughs> obviously. It wasn't given. You know what? You weren't given. This is why naming matters, people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is why naming matters. Give your kids names they have to manifest, not names they have to overcome. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. That, we should put that on a pillow and sell it at home goods. Okay, so Stinlandroth says no. And he says no because he says that the dissertation is filled with speculation, generalizations, and is overall a poor overview of history. Okay, but this is a philosophy thing, right? Which I was. It, this honestly makes sense if this guy is a positivist, okay? Because that's he. He's. It says that he was a uh, a well known positivist in in the uh, university. Positivism is just about as far away on the epistemological spectrum as you can get from where Foucault is now positioned on it. In other words, positivists positively hate speculation. If it can't be concretely proven, then it doesn't exist. Hmm. Uh, okay. Okay. So essentially, if it, just imagine somebody with power over you who absolutely sees reality completely 100% differently than you do and how you should even be able to measure or for him quantify reality is completely different as well. Like truly, you, you can't get too much farther apart. Like, for example, if I'd had somebody on my graduate committees that were like full positivists, I would have never passed ever because a lot of the work that I did 
was more on the end of the spectrum is like Foucault. And a matter of fact, I even had somebody in my PhD program, the associate dean of our College of Communication, tell me that it was cute what I was doing, but, quote, it wasn't real research. Cute. Yeah. Was this, was this a man? Of course. Anyway, having his dissertation denied pissed Foucault off. And in 1958, mm-hmm. he packed up his Jaguar and roared away to Poland, where he oversaw the University of Warsaw's Centre Francaise. Threw his whips and drugs right in the trunk. Right in the trunk, the tiny little trunk, his Jaguar. He wasn't super impressed with Poland. Well, <laughs> it was post World War II Poland, guys. Not great. It had, like it had seen some things. So he wasn't he wasn't super impressed with Poland. But like everywhere that man went, he struck up a number of relationships with other men. Unfortunately, one that he hooked up with turned out to be a security agent who was looking to trap Foucault in a scandalous position, which it did. The incident caused a diplomatic scandal, and Foucault was removed from his position at the University of Warsaw. He relocated to West Germany, where he was the director of the Institut Francais Hamburg. Can we talk about this cop situation? Okay. So, was he a specific target, or was it just like an overall statement? No, he was a specific target. Well, he was acting as a diplomat for France. Like, part of it was a cultural diplomat, and so... They were looking to essentially embarrass the French government, and Foucault was pretty well known at that point for being a trashy slut. Let's not slut shame the slut Foucault for his slutting. <laughs> we should, what, what, what do we say instead? He was gregarious. He didn't talk a lot. He Sexually sucked, gregarious. He sucked a lot. All right. In what is sure to be shocking to everyone listening at this point, Foucault spent much of his leisure time in the Reeperbahn red light district. It was there that he started dating a transgender individual. Ooh, okay. Now, F to M, M to F. I'll be very honest with you. It Everything that I read about it was that he started dating a transvestite, but that term is sort of out of vogue at this point. So we're going to go with non-conforming in some way. Okay. It was also in West Germany where Foucault finally successfully completed his doctoral dissertation entitled Madness and Insanity, the History of Madness in the Classical Age. That's a lot of the same word in one <laughs> Madness title. and classical insanity and madness and classical. <laughs> Fun fact, all of my academic writing, I think actually in undergrad too, but from grad school on, the first half of the title was always a song title. I love that. What songs did you use? Oh, my God. I wrote like hundreds of papers, so lots of them. What was one of them? Uh, man, I feel like a woman. Um, I don't know. I'd have to look them up. But yeah, I used Through the like through the Glass Darkly and all sorts. That was always my thing. Is I'd always use a, a song title for uh, the first half, and then the second half was an explanation of what the study was. I love that. Thank you. Yes. So one of his main theses in the document was that madness is distinct from mental illness and that madness is, in fact, a social construct. This is one of the first places where we really see Foucault's voice as a philosopher crystallize. Most of his subsequent works follow a similar pattern, an expansive history tracing the evolution of some topic, madness, sexuality, punishment, knowledge, etc., and then painstakingly deconstructing it to show how exactly it is a social construct and to what purpose it served to create such a construct. Okay, so I think this is actually 
God, I know I'm falling into exactly the trap that everyone falls into when Foucault comes up right now. But it does feel relevant to some discussions that have been happening in the culture over the last several years about words like crazy and is that ableist because there are types of mental illness that are very distinct from others and some can lead to behavior that is harmful to others and much of it does not so this is interesting that he's deconstructing this yeah and i think what's really interesting and it brings it back to something we were discussing a little bit earlier there's certain things where the construction of society creates madness and that is separate from mental illness well and not just madness but like we're talking about Foucault's promiscuity for example right and you know we're joking that he's a big old slut and that's fine but (laughs) really it was not safe for two men to have a monogamous relationship right right the option that is presented is not going out on dates and and meeting your partner and getting to know them and then maybe taking them home and eventually getting married or something like that. The construct is if you want to act on your biological need to have sex, mm-hmm. you have to meet a stranger in some shame hole and then never see each other again because otherwise people will know that you are a gay and you will be treated very, very poorly or go to prison. Right. I think that's a really good point. And we see that actually as as a through line in a lot of his work. We're going to talk about it in a little bit uh, when, when we talk about his book, The Archaeology of Knowledge. The power that comes with privilege, in that same way when we talked about interpolation and we talked about how there's all of these sort of unobserved ways that, or, you know, these un sort of recognized ways that we get put into specific power situations, that's one of them. Right. In a large swath of the world, we didn't have the privilege of being able to go out and court and go through a normal dating process. Um, and it, it did have to be done sort of through subterfuge and behind, you know, closed doors or in back alleys. So by 1960, Foucault was back in France teaching psychology at the University of Claremont Ferrand. Mm. Notorious for being hard to work with. <laughs> Foucault. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he seems like such a people person, to be honest. Doesn't he? Doesn't he? He seems like such a good guy. Um, notorious for being hard to work with, Foucault succeeded in pushing out fellow academic Roger Garaudi, whom Michelle thought to be stupid. <laughs> uh, he. He also caused a controversy by strong arming the college into giving his boyfriend, the philosopher Daniel Defer, a job. Now, how long had they been together? Not long enough for him to be strong arming for a job. It was pretty recent. Oh, like it was when he when he came back to like France. So, Hmm. um, a couple of years, I would say, after he broke up with Baruch. So Defer and Foucault remained in a non-monogamous relationship for the duration of Foucault's life. That's sweet. Yeah, which you figure they were together for like 25 years. Mm. That's pretty good. That's solid. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that works. Non-monogamous, of course, because Foucault needs to get around. Yeah, I mean, did they live together? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Now, see, that's where it loses me a little bit, because I'm like, well then... You're just adding trouble for yourself. 
It's like, <laughs> it's like, I love you, babe, but I'm going to go risk arrest in a toilet. <laughs> it just, it feels like you're really inconveniencing yourself at that point. Spoken like a man who's living it. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, during this time, he published The Birth of the Clinic, which examined the history of the medical field. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. Why did you just uh, proceed as if you didn't know that was coming? I was just hoping you would be good. No, that's not of me. Of course not. I'm the uh, bad boy. Okay, you're chaos. During this time... He published The Birth of the Clinic, which examined the history of the medical field and how that created social constructs about the, quote, medical gaze or how medicine chooses to look at the body and how to treat it. It's G-A-Z-E, not G-A-Y-S. Medical gaze, not medical gaze. Yeah, I think I've seen medical G-A-Y-S. <laughs> yeah, you saw it at the Porn Expo. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned April, after the, the oh. song for the Porn Expo story. Do I wonder how many listeners know that we have the little coda after the song? Do, do you guys most know of that? them do. Okay. Yeah, most of them do. Yeah. If you don't, you should go back. They're spicy. Well, I mean, they're driving or whatever anyway when they hear it. Exactly. So they're usually not. They can't change it. Yeah. Yeah. In April 1966, he published The Order of Things, an archaeology of the human sciences. In a nutshell, this book posits that all major areas in human history have created their own underlying assumptions of truth, and therefore what is considered acceptable scientific discourse. As an example, Galileo was jailed for heresy for maintaining the Earth orbited the sun. At that time, it was crazy talk. Now, it's accepted as fact, just like Jewish space lasers and lizard people. Oh my God. Proving his point. <laughs> His you point know, was, however, go ahead. the uh, the John Kerry space lasers guy works at UC Davis. He's like a really? he's, he's an instructor there. One of the the finest public universities in the world. That's right. <laughs> Has John Kerry space lasers guy. Space lasers. I love it. Mm -hmm. you, or at least you it know, did a few a... years ago. I don't know. Yeah, but he might have moved on to bigger and bigger, better space space laser things. <laughs> His point was, however, that we are constantly readjusting our epistemologies to reflect the discourse of the time. This was the first of his books that gained widespread attention from academic circles and in popular culture and became a bestseller in France. So it's crazy because this is such a, a self-apparent thing to us now. But did we articulate it previously? No, no. It's a, well, a 20th century idea. And I I mean, and, and honestly, if we want to look at why, like, singularly, like, why Foucault is just kind of kick-ass, even though he's obviously kind of a hot mess, he seems to be kind of the first person to actually say this out loud, right? Mm. Um, and obviously, he's building on a lot of other theories. And like I said, you can see the strings being pulled through and, and with Althusser, and he's got a lot of Heidegger in there and Hegel and, like... All of these, like, you know, stodgy philosophers. But because he did something which was different, which was he was very clear about, like, laying out the map of history. And so in all of his books, he's using these stories. Right. And so it, it does read sort of 
quasi history book, quasi philosophy. And that's really interesting because you get these concrete examples of, of things that happened in history that he can then trace through and say, like, this is how you can see in the example of this, of how epistemologies have changed throughout the different eras. And so it's it's it is a really fascinating way to sort of deconstruct reality. I feel like this is something we think about a lot, especially when we get back to like ancient subjects and subjects from entirely different contexts than we're experiencing right what did this mean to different audiences at the time versus to us now because the underlying assumptions are completely different or maybe completely different which is such a great point that you bring up because one of the things that Foucault has been criticized for is his work becoming the exact thing that he criticized mm. right and and in that way, I feel like he almost reinforcingly proves his point in a lot of his books because they are so of the time of when they were written. And so in that way, he winds up proving his thesis again. I mean, there, there's no unironic way to make the arguments that he's making because they are no, exactly. one person's perspective, <laughs> no matter no matter no. what. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means it's part of larger more complicated truths that is all i have to say about that (laughs) (laughs) i have no way of finishing that That sentence that was so good that was so good (laughs) period the end the period thank you so much i'm probably wrong yeah (laughs) if you enjoyed this podcast (laughs) listen they're listening to a podcast about michelle foucault (laughs) they they knew what they were, we're signing get, up for. We're gonna get we're gonna get such a weird crossover audience with this one. <laughs> mm, all right. I'm sure you'll want to hear what's coming up next in his Jaguar-driven exploits when we explore part two of Michel Foucault. Like so many before us. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to like, rate, and review us. You can find all of the podcasting apps on our website, kickassqueers.com. You can also find us on social media at kickassqueercast. And you can buy us a cup of coffee through yeah. a cup of coffee. So you can help support us and stuff. You know what this does that I think will appeal to listeners maybe more than our needs because no one thinks of us <laughs> no is nobody. um it prevents us from having to run ads yeah nobody wants to hear an, a my pillow guy ad in the middle of a kick-ass queer episode you know what i was gonna say you don't want to subject us to the indignity of having to record awkward conversational advertisements and then i just thought no they probably do so no, they would love that are you kidding me it would be amazing <laughs> yeah. they would love that level of humiliation for us um, we don't though. That's not our thing. Well, thank you, listeners. Please join us next time when we will conclude Rachel's very first sprawling epic about Michel Foucault. And until then, no matter where you lie on the epistemological spectrum of knowledge, continue to kick ass. So Katie gets in an Uber 
because her flight leaves much earlier than anyone else's. Okay. What time did what, So you guys left at like seven, right? Yeah. And she was heading off to the airport at noon. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So she gets in this lift, gets out a couple blocks, and the guy cancels the ride. What? And he's not like letting her out. And she's what? like asking questions or whatever. So she starts group texting us. And we're thinking, you know, he's probably just trying to rip Uber or Lyft off, right? But what if she doesn't have cash? What if he wants more money than... What if he doesn't want her to pay <laughs> <She> wants... in cash? <laughs> right. So I have to call the police. At first, I try the non-emergency number, and they're like, call 911. And then I call 911, and they're like, transfer you to the non-emergency number. And eventually, I wind up, after way too long, by the way, with a dispatcher for the airport itself. Okay. Who was very, very competent, very kind, all the good things. And she asks to be put on a three-way call with Katie. So I do this three-way call. And yeah, it turns out the guy just, you know, he wanted cash and she did have cash. And it wound up even costing her a little less money than it would have through Uber or Lyft. But I'm like, oh my God, you got to report that driver because that's going to scare the shit out of so many people. She paid in trauma. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right but the funny thing is then she had covid so he probably got his good vega uh, story but she saved a couple bucks because <laughs> the ride was going to be 18 and then she would have tipped on top of that right and he just wanted 20 so isn't that isn't that isn't that spirit airlines like motto but you saved a couple bucks <laughs>